I'm here with Obianuchu Ekucha, or Uju for short. <laughs> and, and Ucha is a uh, pro-life activist, a Nigerian, um, but is now living in England. And tell us your story about how you got involved in the pro-life movement. Thank you, Father, for having me on your on your program. Um, uh, about two years ago, oh, three years ago actually now, I was at the World Youth Day uh, at Madrid, and I had taken up a challenge to, to say the rosary every day. Um, and this was really the decision I took at the, the, the very special vigil mass that Pope Benedict had had said at the Contravientus airport, you know, that very famous night that was very stormy. So I started saying the rosary daily, and uh, almost a year later, almost a year later, August of 2012, um, I had said the rosary up until that day. This was on August 5th. And uh, I got quite tired at work on that particular day, and I hadn't said my rosary. And as I was coming back from a very difficult shift, I decided I was not going to say the rosary. But as I got home, I had a change of heart, and, and as God will have it, I decided, okay, I'm going to say the rosary after all. And I, I set off, and I started, I started praying the rosary that night. Um, and very miraculously, as I finished praying the rosary, I felt a boost of energy within me that I could not have explained by myself because the day, the day, that particular day was a very difficult day, as I said. So I went off after the rosary because of the amount of energy I had in me. I went off. I was inspired to watch the television. I didn't know why I needed to do this, but I put on the television and I switched on CNN of all channels, which of course I would not have done ordinarily. Uh, but Shortly after, I realized why maybe I, I, the Holy Spirit had led me, in a way, to, to do that. Uh, Melinda Gates was on that particular show, that particular CNN show, and she was being interviewed. And um, she was talking about her massive contraception project, which she had taken up uh, probably a couple of months uh, prior to that. And she was launching this big family planning summit in London. And so her interview with a uh, Christian uh, Amanpour on CNN was all about um, how she had visited a place in Nairobi, Kenya, and a woman had asked her, had begged her for contraception. She said that was really what was holding the African women back from development and from real uh, progress and from real empowerment. So she spoke at length uh, during that interview um, to my to my chagrin and really to my um, to my own shock and shame uh, on how she described African women, um, that I decided to write something, just something. I, it was not supposed to be an article, but I just started typing on my iPhone um, just reasons why the kind of contraception project Melinda Gates was planning to launch in Africa, why it was going to be detrimental to my people, how it was going to be destructive to the African society, how it was going to be devastating for the future of the African children. So I started writing this on my iPhone and 
five, six hours later, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I got up from, uh, from uh, my, well, it wasn't a trance, but I really got up from, <laughs> from, from, get, from writing this, um, uh, this piece that now turned into a 2,000 word piece. Um, no title, nothing, as I said, it was not supposed to be an article, but I thought to myself, this was a bit more than I, I set out to write. Um, so I, I felt I must or I should send it to someone before I lose it, you know. So while I still had some courage in me, this was 5 a.m. in the morning, of course, mind you, I started writing this the night before. I started thinking and praying, who, I, who was I going to send this to? So I, real, I remembered Teresa Tomio because uh, I was a big fan of hers, and I used to listen to her show, Catholic Connections, quite a lot, and I knew she talked a lot about women issues and contraception and things. So I decided I should send it to Teresa. Um, not for her to read it on air or anything, but just in order to give her some pointers or maybe some help or, you know, some insight, some African insight um, as to if she was going to talk about this particular issue on Melinda Gates. So I didn't even, to show you how unprepared I was, I didn't even have Teresa's email address. So I went to the internet and I went to look for her on the website and I got I got an email address for her and I hoped it was the right one. So I sent it to her and I sent a little introductory letter to say that I was... Um, a fan and I used to listen to her show and I it, her show had helped me quite a lot um, to learn about the dignity of women and I said well if you were thinking of talking about this you can give this as an African insight from an African woman and I had lived in Africa of course up until then for 26 years of my life so I did have a quite a good insight and I have a lot of family members who live in Africa and I have lots of cousins uh, from uh, you know different parts of, of society so so I, I sent it to Teresa, and as the Lord will have it, Teresa received it, read the letter, and she decided to go on air with it. So mm-hmm. she read it on air. Uh, that was very, very shocking and very surprising mm-hmm. to me. And, um, and then immediately she did, um, somebody picked it up from uh, the East Coast, uh, from Worcester, and um, a, a publisher from Catholic Catholic. Uh, Free press online or something like that, and and they decided to to publish the letter. So she asked for my permission, and I gave it, and, and they published it and went online. And then it went viral, and a, a lot of other people picked it up. Uh, Catholic.org, I think LifeSite News, and so many other websites picked it up. And it kept going that way, and a lot of people got to read it, and there was a lot of argument about it. There was a lot of uh, blogging about it as well in the Catholic blogosphere at the time. Uh, But something even more surprising happened. Somebody picked it up at the Vatican uh, from the Pontifical Council for Laity. So they went uh, through Theresa asking if they could translate it and and republish it on their website. And I gave that permission again, and, and they translated it into Spanish. And so it went up on their website as a Spanish um, <coughs> document and also in English as well. So even more people got to read it around the world. So our Nigerian bishops as well, through other means, got to read it. And uh, they contacted me and I, I got talking with some of them. And they brought it to the fore uh, during one of their plenaries. Uh, and in that way, they were able to address uh, this particular issue. And, you know, they did refer to international organizations and philanthropists who were pushing uh, these, uh, these things on Africa. 
So that was how I got into the pro-life movement. And ever since then, I have been uh, writing. I have been trying to blog as much as my time would allow me. And I have been uh, working hand in hand uh, with, with bishops uh, whenever they would, you know, whenever they call upon me to, to assist them with, with something, especially with pro-life issues. So, um, and the array of, of things that I write on are on, on various um, uh, projects that have to do with contraception, um, uh, the push for abortion in Africa, uh, resolutions and policies, especially the ones that are coming out from the United Nations. Um, also, the, uh, I try to follow as much as I can some of the new humanitarian activities um, and projects being carried out by the biggest countries like, like the United States, especially in Africa, and also the United Kingdom as well. Uh, and, and some other nations. So I try to follow follow some of the, the trends of, of their own activities in terms of aid. And also recently we have had some push for uh, for the LGBT propaganda. So I've also had to, in a way, write, write some things about that as well. In all of this, Father, my interest is really just to help to strengthen the African people by putting out the information, by informing people about what is going on. Um, especially some of the things that are quite insidious and hidden, but um, to educate our people, to educate also people from the Western world, to also alert them on, on these things that are going on. Um, and to, to all in all, that all of us together, whether Africans or friends of Africa, can rise up and keep Africa pro-life because Africa does not have... Um, it, we do not... We, we are quite held back uh, in a lot of ways and where a lot of limit, we have a lot of limitations that if uh, things like abortion, um, contraception, um, if the, you know, the LGBT propaganda is brought into our society, these things can break us yeah, and, and they will completely, um, they could completely destroy, destroy us. So what we have going for us is faith and family and real dignity for women and the appreciation of motherhood and uh, and marriage, a, a healthy marriage culture. So that is my aim is, is that to pray and, and encourage people to come in and help us to keep this all together. You were telling me earlier that one of the things that uh, that energized you, got you a little bit, maybe a little angry, was Melinda Gates had said that the women of Africa, of Kenya, had asked for contraception. What was your response to that? Now, uh, to me, with all due respect, I just felt that that, that had to have been um, a lie. Or, or, you know, that had to have been a terrible misunderstanding on her part because I know a lot of African women. Uh, I am African myself. I have aunties who are in the village right now as we speak. I have relatives who are, who are, um, who are living in rural Africa for all that it is worth. And sometimes I, they ask me for things, you know, wh when they're in need, the African woman would not keep quiet. My aunties call me on the phone and they ask me for things. They ask me for help with school fees for their children. They ask me for help with whenever I can with uh, hospital bills and, and, you know, money for food. But never has anybody in all my 33 years asked me openly for contraception or for money for contraception or for help with contraception. So that was why I felt um, that what Melinda Gates was saying could not have been true, could not have been true.
What What are some of the points you made in your in your open letter? Yeah, so I I did ask her um, to consider uh, what it would what what the amount of contraception if if this amount of contraception that she's talking about if is unleashed upon the society what it would do um, to the marriage culture to the perception of marriage to the understanding of, of human sexuality to fidelity even among married people um, I asked her to consider what it would mean for HIV because obviously homo throwing around hormonal contraception uh, will, will lead people to, to, to take up a high, what we'll call high-risk sexual behavior and this will only um, escalate the problem. This would only exacerbate what we already have as a HIV crisis in Africa. So that's another thing. But what about the side effects, the medical side effects? I work in healthcare in the UK, and I do know, no matter what anybody says, that that HIV, that that um, contraception comes with a with a lot of side effects that are handled one, uh, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But most of these African women that she's going to be giving contraception do not even have access to doctors. They don't have access to hospitals. So what happens when down the line they are reacting to the IUDs or they are reacting to the implants? We don't have the infrastructure to handle um, the, the fallout from, from things like, like that. Then also, um, there are issues surrounding, of course, contraception. When contraception is is brought into, you know, brought brought into like a society where where the homosexual um, uh, behavior has has not been embraced, uh, because in a in a way, people say that it's the way the contraception has been brought in and brought a kind of blandness to human sexuality in the West, and that is what has led to uh, to what is happening with the LGBT propaganda. So that can also happen in Africa. That can also happen where people are saying, well, if sex doesn't really yield, uh, you know, if, if sex doesn't really bring about children, then anybody, you know, it should be open to, to everybody and anybody. Uh, but also what I, I did say in my letter had to do with the, what, what she could put the money into because already she had managed to raise about $5 billion at the time. So I said to her, well, the money can be put to education. She can use it to educate African girls if she wants to empower girls. She can use it to help people set up uh, micro-businesses in rural areas. That was going to help us. She can help to feed children and do, um, uh, you know, projects on nutrition and water that will that will bring uh, a lot of good to society and you know and sustenance to, to society so accessible roads there are lots of things that Africa needs but we don't need um, we don't need contraception and contraception also, also almost always yields uh, to abortion and most African countries do not have legal abortion. Uh, because we still consider that the human life is, is sacred even from the moment of conception. So, And there's even, I remember hearing about some success with abstinence programs. Was it in Kenya they had some success? Uganda. Oh, Uganda. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So Uganda, um, Uganda surprised everybody uh, back in the 
80s and the 90s when, uh, you know, shortly after the HIV um, pandemic came upon them and, and there were a lot of people who were affected and the HIV rate got really high, their president, um, President uh, Yoweri Museveni, at the time when uh, the World Health Organization and all the other international organizations were pushing uh, condom as the be-all and end-all of, of the HIV virus, um, he took a decision to, to try out the abstinence program instead. So he put in a lot of effort and he put in a lot of investment with his, with his cabinet um, to, to, to go into society and promote the abstinence program. Uh, they called it the zero grazing program. So they promoted a lot of abstinence. Um, uh, they, they did a lot of abstinence programs and they did a lot of um, fidelity, you know, sort of fidelity aid programs for those who were married. And with time, I mean, by the, by the time Uganda picked this up and they, they, they disseminated this throughout their country, Uganda had the biggest drop ever recorded up to now uh, in HIV infection rate. So that happened over a period of, of time. I think it was over a period of five years. Um, but what has now happened, very un unfortunately, is that they went through a lot of pressure from the international organizations, of course, uh, who kept pushing for, for condoms to be brought back and for the condom campaigns to be brought into schools. Um, a lot of, uh, they, they've had a lot of defunding of their abstinence programs. They still have abstinence programs, but it's no longer as it was before. So yes, indeed, the HIV rate has still come up um, a bit, it has, you know, it has now, it has still reflected that the condom campaigns uh, do not do anything other than, other than help the, the HIV virus to, to escalate, so. And I remember there was a famous Harvard researcher yeah. who said that, that it, it promotes like this reckless, uh, recklessness. Yeah, that was Professor Edward Green, and he has done excellent work, and he's not Catholic, by the way. So, but he has spoken very favorably about the Ugandan program, and he, you know, he was with Harvard, but he lost his contract with Harvard. And he has had to, to uh, he has had to suffer a lot for speaking the professional truth, you know, the truth within um, his, uh, his own uh, professional milieu, and he has paid a great price for it, but he has—he still says it. Um, he wrote, he has written a book about about that. Um, I think it's something like how how the West has broken their promise uh, to Africa in the HIV pandemic. But, but he says in a, in essence that the HIV uh, condom campaigns have done nothing but uh, instill into the people. Uh, high-risk sexual behavior and with this the condoms will fail and he also spoke about the high failure rate of condoms even from his uh, very high academic pedigree and you know he, this is a man who comes with a really um, 
uh, with a really strong qualification in in his in his area of, of specialization and he did say that the failure rate for condoms is way too high to play around with an, an incurable disease like AIDS so and yet they're pushing they're pushing and they continue to push in Africa that the condom projects and the condom campaigns be spread all over the place. I like what you said about uh, earlier. You said that the contraceptive mentality and contraception brings a, a blandness to sexuality. Mm. Tell us about it. Because the, the American presentation of it is that, well, it's liberating and it, it makes you free. But what's the reality? Yeah, I mean, in Africa, um, without having to sound very naive, people do understand um, that, that sex has has two consequences. It's uh, that people can bond and also that, that children uh, are procreated, that, that babies are conceived. So, and people still take a lot of, um, sort of a lot of pride in that because children are taken as a blessing. You know, children are taken as gifts. So uh, bringing in uh, this big, contraceptive mentality where it's taking that contraception will be this very um, major entity within marriages or within you know within the sexual union of married couples uh, can bring about a blandness that says that sex uh, in most cases and only when we say uh, the sex should not actually bring about children um, so if, if this idea or if this thought is injected into the heart of the African people, that is going to affect the way we see children in, in every way, and that's going to affect the way we see each other as, as men and women in, in every way. And also another thing is that we do have a really um, healthy marriage culture. So in most parts of Africa, uh, people still getting married at very high rates, maybe except South Africa, of course, where the culture of death has has very unfortunately been implanted in, in many ways. But we have a really healthy marriage culture, and people are getting married no matter how poor they are, no matter how rich they are. People get married. People seek to get married. People are not looking to cohabit for five years, you know, and, and move on with life. But we do know that, you know, when people are ready to get married, everybody begins to ask you, aren't you going to get married? But people marry, you know, and we are very proud of that and we are very grateful for that. Uh, but once contraception is brought in, in, in a lot of ways that's going to change. Mm. And that's going to change our society quite a lot if people are not getting married. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It changes the whole view of marriage, doesn't yeah. it? Affects it. Yeah. You're born and raised in Nigeria, and uh, tell us about that. Tell us. I know we have a lot of African viewers. Tell us about your culture and and um, salient points about it. What 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 are your strong points of the African culture? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was I was born in Nigeria, raised in Nigeria. Everyone went to university in Nigeria as well. So. Um, I have Did you play soccer? No! <laughs> girls don't play soccer, not really. <laughs> not a lot of girls, but yeah, well, we're all fans, okay? <laughs> you have to be if you're Nigerian. But I have to say that. My, I love my favorite soccer teams are Nigerian. They play. Oh, okay. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. They have a, 
uh, an A&M school there, and they have a lot of Nigerian students, and I grew up watching them play, and they yeah. play beautiful soccer. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we have we have to be supporters of, of soccer if, you're, if you have to be Nigerian. But, <laughs> but yeah, but... Um, it, it, our culture, you know, I, I grew up into into this uh, this wonderful culture where family, where family is is quite a a, a central point, you know, and and everybody has faith. I didn't know one could be atheist until you know maybe until I came officially. I didn't know anybody could could say I don't believe in God until I came out to live in England, uh, because everybody had a faith whether it's Christian or Muslim, but people had their faith. And uh, and um, people didn't disrespect God, not publicly. And also we had a lot of respect for our parents. And if, you'll, if your parents, no matter what age you are, but you will have this, um, this high regard for your parents. And, you know, you want them to approve of what you do. You want, you know, you want to get permission in a way or, or their blessing more like if you're going ahead to do anything. So that's, you know, that's another thing is, is where we the, sort of the primacy of family. And, and family life uh, within my culture. Uh, we also have other things as well, like our tradition. You know, we have a very colorful um, culture. You know, our uh, I always joke to people and say, when you get married here, you have one wedding. We have two weddings because we have to have our traditional wedding where we have this kind of a customary wedding with all our tradition and we'll have our traditional wear and we have our traditional dance. And of course, uh, there is all the negotiations between the families that get married. Uh, but at the end also, we have enough respect for faith to go ahead and have a church wedding where it's the really the sacramental wedding because we, we do understand um, that uh, what is, you know, what holds really is the sacramental marriage, you know, the the one we have in the church with the priests present. So, um, so that's also another thing is a is a very colorful culture, um, but also it's kind of a, a view of life and and is also you know our way of worship and our way of of talking and our way of relating to people. It's a very I, I come from Nigeria myself, and and it's uh, it's the way people relate to each other. It's it's kind of funny, but I never really got used to it. It's a big culture shock for me when I went to England, because um, normally we would go to each other's houses without invitation. But when I got to England, I had to have appointments <laughs> to <laughs> to go and visit friends, and you know, you say, "Are you going to be around this Sunday?" But no, in, in Nigeria, you kind of you know, you you up and you go to someone's house and if they're having lunch you have it with them you know unless you don't feel like having lunch with them but but that's the kind of environment I grew up in and I had uh, lots of cousins as well I still do have lots of my cousins in Nigeria and it's the way we go to each other's houses and you know you can decide to spend the night if you wanted or you know if you yeah if you're not if you if you don't finish what you go for you just stay there and call your parents and tell them oh I'll be back tomorrow you know <laughs> I'm with my cousins so it's the way we 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 live in that way so we also have what we call our village i don't know what you call it here but that's like our ancestral home our village would be where where our grandparents uh, settled um years and years ago so but normally people migrate from that village 
into the city. So my dad, when he when he grew up, he migrated to a city, and then so did his brothers. But really, once at least once a year, at Christmas time, we all still come back because the lands belong to our grandparents, and so we have houses there as well. My parents and his brothers have, my dad and his brothers have have houses there. So we come back at the Christmas to spend Christmas together with our uncles and aunties and cousins, and it's really wonderful because I have a particularly big family. My dad has seven brothers, so I have at least uh, 60 cousins and, you know, seven aunties and uncles. And it's incredible because, uh, you know, we come together at Christmas and spend like a week, you know, the, the week between Christmas and New Year together. And it's it's usually a massive event and a big family reunion. And we do look forward to that every year. So. How long is Sunday Mass? I remember speaking to a Kenyan priest, and it went on for hours, but how about in Nigeria? Yeah, so our Sunday Masses are a minimum of two and a half hours, <laughs> and that is minimum for a very quick one. But I'll tell you something really funny, Father, because uh, last June, last year, I went to, uh, to do a pro-life mission back in, in Nigeria, at the invitation of a particular um, Archbishop, Archbishop Obina, who is really fantastic uh, pro-life, pro-life Archbishop. So I went with some of my American friends. I went with three American friends. One of them was from HLI and then two from other places. And uh, during our time having this pro-life event, on the Sunday of that week, um, the Archbishop got an invitation to go to a parish to, to bless a new parish, to launch it and, you know, bless the the parish council and they also had children who were going to have confirmation on the same day. So it was a good invitation and it happened to be at the time when we were around. So the, the Archbishop invited us along with him. So they call it a pastoral visit. I don't know, in Nigeria we call it a pastoral visit. And I asked him when we were going, I said to him, how long is this mass going to be? Because I thought I thought in my mind it could be long. He said it's long, but it's not all that long. Mm. Mass lasted five hours. <laughs> not a joke. Mass lasted five complete hours. So, and I went there. I thought my American friends were going to to faint, but but they gave us water during mass, and that was very merciful. And they kept us near the window, but it was awesome and I have some incredible pictures from that mass and uh, and uh, some of the Americans said it was you know that like the best mass they ever went to the longest too. <laughs> well I, I've noticed I, we've studied with a number in seminary I had a number of Nigerian seminarians and and uh, it's a they're all great preachers it's a very oral culture right? there's a lot of and even like we have a Nigerian priest that come through the network intern or whatever and and oftentimes on weekends they'll come up and have dinner with the friars, yeah. and and they just have we've had wonderful conversations with them. You can tell it's just such a part of your culture is to talk with one another and spend time. Yeah, yeah we're very just as I said, we are a very um, vocal, <laughs> <laughs> very vocal uh, people, and and we we have a lot of um, storytelling. I think background to our mm -hmm. culture um and so yes we we do have you know we we talk a lot uh, for instance i know when i leave america and go back uh, one thing i have to do is to call my cousins and spend at least two or three hours telling them all about what i did you know it would be a storytelling session where you know when i went here and i saw this and i did that and so we are very um very 
vocal in that way and very conversational as well in in you know in our in our way of life and we spend a lot of time uh, kind of telling each other about our lives or about our experiences our daily experiences yeah and you got to meet uh, Pope Benedict is that right Pope Francis. Oh, Pope Francis, tell us about that. Oh, that was awesome. Uh, now, last year, what happened was last year, 2013, was the 25th anniversary for uh, John Paul II's excellent document on women, Mulieris Dignitatem. Um, and I was very fortunate because the Vatican Pontifical Council for Lady particularly had put out a list of 100 women they invited for uh, to come in and to celebrate it uh, with a series of lectures and a series of talks and i happened to be one of those i was representing africa with two other women so we had these series of talks at the pontifical council for laity but on the last day they told us Pope Francis wanted to see us, of course. And he has uh, this, this thing with the new, um, you know, he has talked a lot about it, the theology for women or the theology, or, you know, where, where we're going deeper to understand the role of women in church. So it wasn't very, very surprising that he wanted to see us, but it was, you know, I was quite pleased. At first they weren't sure if he would have the time because it was also coinciding with exactly the same weekend where he did the consecration of the world to the Blessed Mother, where the statue came from Fatima. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know if he was going to be able to see us. But in the morning, yes, uh, they invited us to the palace. And um, this is at the uh, the chapel of uh, St. Clement. So I think it's Capel St. Clement. So, and we went there, and, and that was really a wonderful experience because we spent about an hour with the Holy Father. And he, uh, of course, he spoke to us and uh, about, about uh, you know, just being women in the church. And he, he thanked us because of Obviously, the hundred women that were invited were people working in different ministries. He blessed our commitment to the church and all, all you know, the different ministries we were serving in. Um, and also then he met us one by one. So that was incredible because I, I was dumbfounded. I didn't, I wasn't ready to meet the Pope. I didn't know we were actually going to meet him one by one because there was a hundred of us. And I was right in front, they sat me right in the front. I was number three to meet him. So I had absolutely, my mind was blank and I didn't have anything to say and I couldn't speak Spanish. So I wasn't prepared to ask anybody like, you know, what, how do you say hello? I didn't have a thing to say. So when I met him, he surprised me because I was introduced by the president of the Pontifical Council for Lady, that's Cardinal Rilko. So when the Cardinal introduced me, I knew that he introduced me as Nigerian because I had met the Cardinal days before, you know, and, and the Cardinal knew me. We, we had spoken a bit about what I do. And so he was trying to tell the Holy Father what I do. And then the Holy Father surprised me by speaking English, perfect English. And he said, please pray for me. And because I was so taken aback, I started crying, you know, so, so that was, you know, very overwhelming. And that was really touching. So I said to him, yes, I will, you know, yes, I'll pray for you. And that, that was very touching. And then he blessed me and then they left. So that, that was a very, um, you know, just life changing moment for me. It was, that was certainly a very special moment for me. And that was, that was last October. What are some of your thoughts about the role of women in the church? What is the women's gift that they bring? 
Yeah, so obviously you must remember I come from Africa, so I didn't actually, I wasn't exposed to any of, you know, the church's documents up until... You know, more recent years, you know, three, four years when I started listening a lot to EWTN uh, radio and some of the shows, of course, on TV, but very much so in the radio um, programs when I started hearing about documents about women and, and such. So I was quite, I came to it quite ignorant. Uh, but now, of course, um, having gone through a lot of these documents and having followed a lot of the um, sort of important women thinkers in the church, if you like, um, and also myself now having been in ministry in a way serving within the pro-life movement um, I certainly would say that uh, that what women would bring to the church is is the gift of their feminine genius as 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 Pope, Pope uh, John Paul II now blessed uh, John Paul II and soon to be sent John Paul II taught us uh, that women come with a certain sensitivity which which is really theirs if you if you like um they come with with an inner generosity of course men are generous as well but women have a certain um, inner generosity to them um and a certain um softness right or this really striking thing statement right at the end of the uh the vatican too uh, there's a, a particular statement made to women, of course, to everybody. But the part to women, uh, it was uh, Pope Paul VI who who had who had said. I mean, of course, through the cardinal who read this this statement that women know how to make the truth sweet. So, <laughs> so, so yes, we. I think what women can bring to the church, um, and and to to the to the mission of the church, is to. Be, be firm with the truth that the church has been entrusted with because the truth is what we owe to the world but women would know how to bring that truth to the world with a certain sweetness which with which with which people can consume it especially the world today it's so difficult uh, but but women can bring this certain uh, femininity to 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 evangelization which will complement very well uh, the work of the men within the church. Yeah, I think, I think to personalize it, right? Women have a, a sensitivity to the human person. Yeah. And I know John Paul spoke about have a special role in bringing about a culture of life, yeah. a culture of peace. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Pope Francis also said it in the statement he made to us when we when we met him and he said women know how to I think he said something like women know how to how to be you know soft with the things of God you know how to how to bring the things of God to people so yes and and John Paul II as well said it in Evangelium Vitae that yes women have a very important role um in promoting a culture of, of life in a very special way and a culture of, of peace. So so we, we hope to advance that. I will say something just as a little addendum. Um, some few, I'd say, just about when I started doing this pro-life work, something I was very engaged with at the time was looking at the spirituality of women within the Catholic Church. But in a very particular way, I was trying to trace, this is a very ambitious project, but I was trying to trace how evangelization came to my people. So my very town in Nigeria, 
was only evangelized in the 1920s. So my grandparents were pagans, but they converted and just as they were getting married. So uh, so I, my dad found some of the their marriage certificates and some of the documentations around the marriage. And, and that set me off on a path. And I said, oh, I have to find the people who evangelized them. And I knew that it was the Holy Ghost Fathers. But what I was very interested in were the sisters who were working with the Holy Ghost Fathers and uh, the, the Holy Rosary Sisters. And I found out that they were in Dublin. So during the Eucharistic Congress in 2012, I had an appointment to go see them because I phoned them up and I said, I am a grandchild of a, of a, of a convert, you know, that was, she, she came through your, your evangelization work and I want to know what you all did and I wanted to, to speak to someone. And the last surviving sister, Sister Helen King, who was in Nigeria, uh, had an appointment with me and I spent three hours in the house with her and she told me all about her mission and you know not just hers but their congregation and they showed me lots of beautiful pictures that they took out in Ireland I still have ambitions to go back and write about these things because it was a very massive project and they did a fantastic and phenomenal work of evangelization because uh, in my own village the last pagan, that's my daddy's first cousin, got converted three years ago. So they had a 100% conversion rate. <laughs> and that has happened, you know, many, many years after, but they have done it. Especially now that we're talking about the new evangelization, you know, they answered their own call, which was the Demisio Ad Gentes that, you know, I think it was Pope Pope uh, Pius the, the 12th and Pope Pius the 11th, they were calling for Missio Adjentes. And now the Holy Fathers are talking about this new evangelization. It's very serious. And they took it seriously, these Irish sisters. And this Irish sister told me how she left home. You know, she left home at 28 years old. And she came to Nigeria and she settled. And they came to die. You know, they didn't know they were going to go back one day and retire. But, but they did give their lives to the mission. So I, I, the day I met this sister, I told her, you have to bless me because I have to take this mission seriously, as seriously as you took your own mission. And thanks to you, my grandmother became Christian. My dad became, was baptized Christian. And so did I eventually become Christian. So they did a heck of a lot of work and, and they did convert my people. And they, uh, and, you know, today we are reaping the fruits of that almost without uh, almost without giving credit where credit is due. So, yeah. It, it is staggering what the Irish have done, and they've been a country of so much suffering, and, and they, they were flung to the corners of the earth, you know, yeah. so to speak, by their poverty and driving them out and everything. And they, yeah. I mean, in our diocese here in Alabama, we've had a number of uh, foreign-born Irish priests yeah. that came and worked, and uh, so that's a beautiful story. Did you want to, at, at the close here, did you want to say anything about your experience at the U.N.? So I was at the UN last week. So <laughs> what happened at the UN last week is the conference called the Conference on Population Development. Now this is a continuation of the Cairo conference that happened 20 years ago. So this year they call it a plus 20. And of course, every 
everybody knows or most people know that at the Cairo conference was when the the big um, unveiling of this plan of population control happened where the likes of Hillary Clinton at the time when she was much younger uh, started to talk about contraception as a universal right, things that we never heard before. Now, so this year, I felt it was quite important for me to be there. Very fortunately, I got an invitation. So I was there Monday through Friday. <clears throat> and a lot of what we saw there was very scary. There were some pro-life people there, maybe about 10 to 15 of us. Uh, but there were organizations, big giants like Planned Parenthood, Mary Stopes International, IPAS, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't know IPAS, but it's from, it's an organization that was formed here, I think in North Carolina, but a lot of their work is done in Africa. And they, their work in Africa, or their mission, if you like, is to spread uh, abortion services, cheap abortion services, and make it as accessible as possible. So... Um, these organizations were right there. They're very wealthy organizations. They're very highly favored by the likes of World Health Organization. And uh, we had uh, lots of occasions where they had side events, and, and I did go for some of these side events. And you find that what, what they are trying to plan is a way to make the abortion message more palatable to people. They are trying to push abortion as a moral obligation. That was what they, in their own exact words, uh, because they said uh, if abortion is legalized, then it's safe. And we all know that is not true. Um, in Africa, people are dying from even the most minor surgeries, even the most tiny stitches. You know, one can get sepsis and die of it. And what they intend to do is to come in and bring in surgical abortion to Africa. This is going to be, you know, this is, this is going to be terrible for my people if, if that ever happened. But anyway, that's what they're planning. And even up to the point of United Nations, uh, they had, you know, they had a lot of plans. They had a, their own declaration. They called the LI Declaration. And it's a, a just a, this declaration that has been co-signed by about 70 people from around the world on how abortion should be a global right. Okay, so they want it as a universal right. They're pushing what they call their sexual and reproductive rights, which is all about uh, you know, which is all about gen uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, giving access to contraception to women and girls. So even in their documents, a lot of the things they've written is all about giving access to women and girls. So irrespective of the age, you know, they, they are not talking about age, but they just want access to abortion to everybody. So uh, it's very scary that this is happening at the United Nations, uh, but it's happening anyway. And they're, ones, they're the ones who are most highly favored there. The pro-life people there, we couldn't do much. We didn't have a lot of resources. So what we did a lot was just to try to encourage maybe some of the other nations. There were nations that were there. Of course, all the member states were there. So I tried a lot to encourage uh, some of the African, African member states. Uh, we tried to lobby them. We tried to encourage them. The Arab states did very well as well. Uh, but unfortunately, and very much to my surprise, the Latin American countries did really badly. 
because a lot of them have fallen. You know, a lot of them have fallen by the wayside. Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, they're all uh, singing the same song of sexual rights. The Philippines as well this year has fallen to the side for the first time. And that, that was not very good. So a lot of the countries got to give speeches as well. And with each national speech, you get to know in a way, because they signal what is most important to them. And mind you, Father, this, is, this was a conference that was meant to be on development as well. It's meant to be population and development. But m nine out of 10 speakers, or nine out of 10 countries, uh, all they equated to development was what they were doing with their women. So uh, sexual health, you know, reproductive rights, that is that was all it was all you know what it was all about countries like sweden australia you know they even spoke very publicly uh, the australian man said he was very disappointed that at this point they still have not gotten women the rights to bodily autonomy so when he said this, there was almost like a standing ovation for him. But everybody knows that the bodily autonomy he's talking about is, is abortion rights. Uh, that one says this in a, a private conversation is different, but he said this on the floor of United Nations. So this is, you know, this is what we're contending with, and, and I don't think they're ready to stop. And, and if they're not ready to stop, then we are not ready to stop fighting as well. So. Was the pro-life contingent allowed to address the floor? Very few. Uh, there were about three people. I think it was Austin Roos's organization, one, and then there was another Family Watch International also, and and one other organization got to uh, make a very very brief speech. But Amnesty International got to speak, and Planned Parenthood got to speak, and Marie Stopes International. These were all giving prime time, uh, time you know prime time. Uh, uh, how would you say prime pr uh, prime time slots exactly during during the speeches? Uh, the Holy See. One thing I haven't said here is that the Holy See is doing a phenomenal job at the United Nations, mm -hmm. and the Holy See, as an entity at the UN, is really the conscience of the world. They are holding together. Pro -life, the pro-life fight, they are working very, very closely with the good Arab countries, and they are, they are fighting, you know, they're fighting for the dignity of, of, the, of the human life, and they're fighting for the sanctity of human life. Uh, in a place like the UN, where really the humanity, the humanity of the unborn child has, is now being denied. It, we're now at that stage where in a whole week, nobody would refer to the unborn child. They just kept talking about abortion, abortion, abortion. Uh, but they're not really talking about integrity of the family or you know, sanctity of marriage. None of that uh, is, is now being admitted at the United Nations. But the Holy See is doing a fantastic job in fighting. Yeah. Well, God bless you for your work. And I'll just close. If you could say something in Ibu for oh us. Oh, my goodness. What do you want me to say? Is there a, a blessing in Ibu or something? Or? Okay. And uh, that's it. Yeah. Thank you, Ojo. <laughs> Thank you, Father. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>